This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On this episode, we look at the likely impact of the Soleimani assassination in both Iran and Iraq. We begin with University of Michigan professor Juan Cole, who's the chief editor of Informed Comment. He joins us to examine the decision by President Trump to launch the strike that killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani escalating the standoff with Iran to a new level of violence that could trigger a much broader and more lethal direct conflict. We get Juan's views on the ramifications for U.S.-Iranian relations, the domestic considerations for each regime, and the wider implications at home and in the Middle East. We then continue with Youssef Baker of Cal State University, Long Beach, who works on the political economy of the American invasion and occupation of Iraq, as well as the broader war on terror. He's been writing about the Iraqi protest movement and says the American attacks and Trump's assassination of General Soleimani has fanned the escalating regional conflict and is a death blow to the Iraqi protests. Iraqis have been pushed into the eye of the storm, and every Iraqi political force has now to pick a side with deadly consequences. The U.S. has made Iraq into its battlefield once again, making this escalation the most consequential action in Iraq since 2003. We get Yousef's analysis and perspective. All this when we return on Jacobin Radio. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to be with you. Well, the decision by President Trump to launch the strike that killed a top Iranian general is being seen as an acute escalation, raising questions about what the administration expected. U.S. officials portrayed the targeted killing of Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani as a preemptive action to avert an attack that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said would have cost dozens or hundreds of Americans. Lives. We've heard a lot about that. Yet the strike is being seen in Iran as a declaration of war that requires a military response. Well, this is a story that is going to be haunting us for a while, and I could think of no one better than Juan Cole to help us unravel it. He's the founder and chief editor of Informed Comment, and you can find that online. He's also the Richard Mitchell Professor of History at the University of Michigan and an adjunct professor at the Gulf Studies Center in Qatar University. He's the author of many books. The latest is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. You can follow him at J. R.I. Cole. Juan Cole, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Uh, thanks, Susie. It's great to be here. Very good, and I can't wait to hear what your thought is. Well, as I started out with the assassination, the report that appears actually in the New York Times on Trump's decision to assassinate Soleimani indicates that Trump's top advisors were stunned when he chose this option. They had believed it was obviously too extreme and risky for Trump to consider adopting it, and they had put it forward in a menu of possible actions to take to make the other options appear more palatable. They never imagined that he would choose the most risky, the most extreme one, but the fact is that he did. So can you talk about this decision to assassinate Soleimani in the context of the series of steps that Trump and his administration have taken to put ever-increasing pressure on Iran? And the background, of course, you know, we could pick a date to go back to, but don't have time probably to start with 1953, but maybe 2018, of course, is one that comes to mind with the scuttling of the Iran nuclear accord and its imposition of the most uh, draconian, crippling sanctions ever. So let's hear from you. Yeah. 
Well, this is a fast-moving story, and of course, we we don't actually have access, good access to decision-making processes. Not to mention that I have to say, you know, trying to analyze Trump's decision-making is very frustrating because we all have a set of policy tools that we deploy uh, that we're used to using when we talk about presidential administrations. I don't think they really apply to Trump because he, he's um, a different kind of person. Uh, I'm not a medical professional, and so I can't diagnose what exactly is his condition. But uh, he, he is erratic, let us say. And so I think we just have to acknowledge that to begin with, that it's not this particular decision that has stunned his staff and the people around him. It's all of his decisions virtually. Uh, he, he just uh, lurches uh, here and there. And he, you know, um, Dave Chappelle said uh, that we elected an Internet troll as our president. And I think he does <laughs> attempt to command our constant attention by trolling us in various ways. I, ultimately, I, I think this assassination was a form of trolling. I, I think it had to do with taking the spotlight off of his impeachment. I think he was afraid that uh, the embassy invasion in Iraq last Wednesday would get him tagged as a as another Clinton with a, a Benghazi kind of unpreparedness. Uh, and so he just wanted to look macho, mm-hmm. uh, and this was his way of doing it. Um, the, the U.S. story about all this, uh, I, I just find completely implausible. Uh, and, and Prime Minister uh, Adel Abdelmati, Prime Minister of Iraq, that was you know, put in power in part through U.S. Acqui- acquiescence, uh-huh. said today that, that the Saudis had reached out to him and said they wanted to cool things down with Iran and would he please mediate. And he says he invited Soleimani to Baghdad for consultations about reducing tensions in the region. Soleimani flew to Baghdad on a commercial flight. Mm-hmm. He checked in through Baghdad Airport with a, a diplomatic passport. It was all transparent. There was no covert, covert operation here. And he was the invited guest of the Prime Minister of Iraq, an American ally. And then abruptly, Trump blew him away. And there isn't any scenario in which, he, if this is true, he was coming there to kill anybody, including killing uh, uh, hundreds of Americans, and where are those hundreds of Americans that were uh, they were plotting against? They, they, they certainly couldn't have been planning to kill U.S. troops because they knew that would draw a uh, military response. And there aren't very many Americans uh, in Iraq, certainly not hundreds, out living in the economy. When I was at last in Baghdad in 2013, I, I met uh, a young man who was living in an apartment in Baghdad, and he thought he was the only American who was doing that. Hmm. Well, this is, you know, and I want to get further into, you know, whether what what Soleimani stood for and whether or not he had killed hundreds of Americans and what, you know, whether there was an imminent attack. But I'm going to back up for a second because you kind of said that it's impossible to discern what Trump's policy is because of the way that he is so reactive and wants to look tough. So it's very difficult to understand 
you know, in a sort of coherent way, what this is uh, was designed to achieve. But let's just go back for a second. Despite, you know, the pursuit of ever more aggressive policies towards Iran by the Trump administration, Trump, on the other hand, paradoxically seems ultimately to have little stomach for an, an extended conflict with Iran or war in the Middle East. So as we know, he's made the reduction of American involvement in and ultimately withdrawal of troops from the Middle East a kind of defining goal of his foreign policy. So how do you understand this contradictory position, if you can, you know, of Trump's? Yes. Uh, well, you know, I don't want to be glib about this because uh, mm-hmm. Trump is a very complicated person, obviously. But um, I do think, he, you know, he comes out of the New York real estate scene. <laughs> and I think he made his way in life by making real estate deals. And, you know, real estate deals are actually pretty complicated, which is why most people end up using a realtor because the two parties don't really trust each other. And... Um, I, I think there are also a lot of sharp elbows in, in the New York real estate scene where if somebody doesn't want to sell their property, you, you find ways of putting pressure on them. So I think Trump is used to uh, hitting people hard who he wants to negotiate with and putting them off balance and in a weaker position and then swooping in and making the deal that benefits him on that basis. And I think that's the way he approaches the world. Uh, do you do you want a, a a better deal with China? Hit them with trade tariffs, hurt their economy, and then come back and say, "Well, you know, we might be able to make a deal." And in the New York real estate scene, you know, aside from maybe the mafia, you probably won't get anybody killed acting that way. But in the real world, out there in the globe, uh, acting that way uh, has real dangers because when you hit somebody hard it can spin off into a war. And this is what he's done with Iran. As you said, he, he, he breached the U.S. treaty with Iran, uh, which had um, given Iran economic sanctions relief that would stop you know, sanctioning Iran, Iran's economy if Iran would mothball 80% of its civilian nuclear enrichment program, which Iran did, and the U.N. says that it did so faithfully up until very recently. So Iran did everything it was asked of it, uh, but then Trump stabbed them in the back by reimposing economic sanctions of the most severe sort ever imposed on a country in peacetime. Right, right. He, got, he went around to South Korea and Japan and India and threatened them with third-party Treasury Department sanctions on their economy if they didn't stop buying Iranian oil. Well, there's no international law against Iran selling its oil. Uh, and the UN uh, sanctions had, were lifted in 2015, and they hadn't you know, discouraged buying the oil even then. So this is a rogue operation of one man, basically, because he doesn't have even congressional assent to it, uh, to strong-arm Iran by strangling it, by blockading it. You know, if you pulled up naval ships, and stop the country from trading in, uh, on the high seas. That's considered an act of war. Mm. But Trump has used the Treasury Department in exactly that way. He's, he, he, he made the Iranian oil exports plummet from 2.5 million barrels a day uh, to last May. It was, it was less than uh, um, a million. Uh, and, and Iranians, you know, th- th- their economy is, is devastated by all this. 
people are complaining they don't have money to buy medicine, that loved ones are dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you know, y- y- people are wondering, will the war break out because of what Trump did to Soleimani? Well, you, you, Trump has been at war with Iran uh, for, for uh, 18 months. I want to go um, back for a second on that, but I think it's, it, you know, it's very important that you, about what you said about, the, you know, the sort of, if we can say, a logic of Trump's decision-making, um, you know, thinking. And and Barbara Slavin in the New York Times said that, you know, this is an act of revenge on Trump's part, but revenge is not a strategy. And, you know, this was a very risky thing to do because, you know, Iran is not Iraq. It's not Afghanistan. It's a pivotal country with 80 million people. They have a history. They're nationalist. And even though there's a lot of divisions within this you know, within Iran, it seems like Trump has united them uh, in their opposition to what the United States has done, even more so than what they've done for the last uh, 40 years. And so it creates even more instability. But I wanted to go into, you know, more about how you understand, uh, and this is sort of like reading tea leaves a bit, but <clears throat> the, the divisions within the Trump administration on this, because it seems like, you know, there's a very powerful, very hawkish, very pro-Israel faction on Iran and the Middle East, and its leading, fi- leading figures are um, State Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, the old neocons like John Bolton, who even though was pushed out, has now tweeted his support of what Trump has done and said onward to regime change. And then there's the other extreme right-wingers like Eric Prince of uh, Blackwater. So how would you assess the strength of these highly aggressive factions? You know, we do know that Trump complained about Bolton as being way too hawkish. Yeah, but Trump said Bolton kept trying to get him into a war. Uh-huh. He didn't want that, which is why Bolton was pushed out. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think that the neoconservative faction in the administration is very strong ordinarily. Uh, I, I think, you know, when Iran shot down an American drone in the Persian Gulf last summer, uh, Bolton wanted... Uh, Trump to hit Iran. He wanted to hit a, a military facilities in Iran. And Trump said, well, how many people would that kill? And uh, they, they said, well, you know, 25, 50. And uh, Trump said, well, the, the drone that was shot down didn't kill anybody. So I, I, that's not proportionate. I don't want to do that. Hmm. And, I, and I think, you know, he, he thinks his kind of poorly educated base, that's what he calls them, uh, uh, sort of the white working class in Midwest uh, uh, doesn't want more blood and treasure spent on the Middle East. And so he, he didn't want to do something that might escalate. Uh, so I, I don't think the neoconservative faction is, is, is happy with him or is very strong ordinarily. But precisely because he's so erratic and because his motives are so uh, personal and grudgy, if you have people around him like that, it's always possible that at some point they can present to him some opportunity for aggression that might appeal to him. And I think that's what happened here. Yeah, I think that sounds just about right, because it's a di- it's obviously difficult to understand, you know, to assess, let's say, the strength of the hawkish faction um, and what's limiting it. Because as you've just said, it's 
Trump's refusal to support the most extreme measures usually. I think it was in the New York Times today that, you know, after the drone attack, he was 10 minutes away from responding when apparently Trump spoke to Tucker Carlson, who said, your base will hate this. So, so I think, you know, that sounds the most plausible. But but then let's go look on the other side of it, Huang Cole. How do you see the Iranian leadership's thinking about a response to Trump's taking out of their uh, top general? It seems that they have little choice but to respond with a decisive strong action so they won't look weak. And on the other hand, Trump's inconsistency on policy and previous reluctance to take decisive steps might lead them to try to avoid a profound uh, confrontation. And of course, we're hearing a lot now about uh, the asymmetric response using proxies and things so and possible delays. So what do you think, uh, you know, their their reaction is going to be, if you can well, Iran is, first of all, weak. Uh, and the, the U.S. Um, kind of corporate media, uh, and I want to congratulate you on what you're doing, Susie, because you're, <laughs> you're getting the, the, the news out uh, to the public uh, that, that's not uh, got so many... Um, well, you're the star on that one, but thank you. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the corporate uh, media depicts, uh, you know, has a demonization machine. And so these dinky little notes Nothing countries militarily like Cuba and 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 Iran are are built up as as some kind of uh, huge peer power to the United States. Iran doesn't have you know an air force to speak of. It doesn't have a navy. Uh, it doesn't have sophisticated armor. Hmm. Uh, it, it people say well, it has this huge military machine. Well, it's eight hundred thousand volunteers. They're, and frankly, they're just neighborhood guys, you know, who, who, who train. I mean, they're 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 really like a street gang, uh, and and so they don't have the the ability militarily to stand up to the United States. And then you know you'll hear Iran is in Syria. Well, they had twenty five hundred Iranian Revolutionary Guards troops in Syria, plus some cannon fodder from Afghan refugees in Iran that they made go. But it you know it's not a it's not a pure power. It's a ragtag, ramshackle little place. Uh, and uh, it has, you know, 80 million people, which is the population of Germany. But it's, it's GDP is more like that of Poland. You know, it's, it's, it's just not, it's not a serious adversary to the United States. So it can't do anything to the U.S. of a conventional military sort. They would have their uh, behinds handed to them. So, you know, they know this. And, uh, they they have tried to make their way in the world since their 1979 revolution by soft power, you know, by Soleimani specialized in cultivating Shiite young men to join these militias, kind of the Hezbollah model of a state within a state. Uh, and uh, so, what what could they do? Well. First of all, the Iraqi parliament just passed a resolution asking the Iraqi government to look into expelling U.S. troops from Iraq. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the members of parliament who voted for that are hardline Shiites who sympathized with Soleimani. Now, they tried to do this last March, and they couldn't get the Iraqi uh, central government to go along with it because Abdel Abdel Mahdi and other rulers and shakers are pragmatists and they appreciated the 5,000 U.S. troops that were in Iraq who were helping mop up operations against ISIS. 
So they didn't want to lose that, and, and they're still afraid of, you know, of ISIS, this terrible hyper-Sunni uh, uh, terrorist organization uh, coming back. Uh, and so they were, the Adel Abdel Madi Prime Minister wouldn't get rid of the Americans last March. But now he has no choice, I think. Uh, he can, can drag his feet, maybe, but uh, the, the, the assassination of Soleimani has strengthened the hardliners inside uh, Iraq who are pro-Iran, and they managed to get this through Parliament this time. And and Abdel Mahdi seems to be personally betrayed by, by Trump because uh, Soleimani was his guest. So what, what's Iran going to think now is that maybe Abdel Mahdi was in it with, with Trump to get Soleimani, which puts a big red target on Abdel Mahdi's back. You know, he could be assassinated. Right. Well, I wanted so, to just go back to Iran for one quick second on this, because what we've seen, and I had uh, Kevin Harris on uh, last week talking about the Iranian protest movement, uh, which was quite large. And it seems like every time, of course, you know, things are never so uh, neatly, uh, you know, wrapped together. But every time there is huge divisions in Iran, U.S. does something that ends up strengthening the Islamic regime. And it seems like this is doing the same thing. And I was going to ask you, as you were talking about repercussions in Iraq, to go back for a second and talk about, you know, given how weak you said Iran is militarily, uh, what kinds of actions are open to them? Do you think that there'll be drone attacks on, say, Saudi oil production facilities or tens of thousands of civilians at, Amer- at the American embassy in Baghdad as they, uh, you know, as they uh, threatened? What, what kinds of things can they do? Well, they'll use proxies which don't have a clear or, or, or absolutely provable Iranian footprint. So, you know, that in, in September when they hit the uh, Saudi um, oil facility at Abqaiq, there's some evidence that some of that destruction was local. Uh, and so there may have been you know, a radical Shiite group in eastern Arabia, which is where a lot of Shiites, uh, Saudi Shiites live who were hooked up with Iran, who were partly behind this. And it's never been possible for the United States to finger Iran on that attack with, with any indisputable evidence. So, there, yeah, there will be more things like that. But what I was saying about the Iraqi parliament is, yeah. is that, in a way, if, if you went to the Soleimani uh, last year and said, uh, would you like to get U.S. troops out of Iraq and have Iraq be closer to Tehran and kind of be a satellite of, of Iran, would you like that? And Soleimani would say, well, you know, assuming that it didn't endanger the fight against ISIL, absolutely, I would love that. Well, Trump has, has arranged for this. So th- that's, I think, the major response is, you know, Muqtada Sadr, the radical Shiite cleric, uh, who, who is not pro-Iranian, uh, came out today and said he wanted the U.S. embassy just closed. There won't be a U.S. embassy in Baghdad. Wow. And, and he can make that happen. Uh, so let's go back and talk a little bit, Juan Cole, about Soleimani himself. Every commentator in the U.S. media begins with the obligatory statement that he was a bad guy, responsible for the deaths of hundreds of Americans. The assertion seems kind of puzzling, at least prima facie on its face. But um, it doesn't seem easy to specify where... Iranian forces were responsible for killing so many Americans. So is this sort of just the, you know, the usual sort of mainstream media, as you said, 
falling in lockstep, you know, and actually many, there's a lot of articles appearing about how pro-war they've been. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about where these so-called killings took place and what it refers to. We're also seeing that Soleimani was, you know, the main bulwark against ISIS. And as you said, he was going into, uh, you know, there was the possibility that uh, they would have a more decisive role in um, Iraq, but he also played the the primary role in the Iran-Iraq war. Give us a little bit of a sort of overview of Soleimani and how bad of a guy he was. <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't find it useful in foreign policy analysis to do it in terms of good guys and bad guys. I, uh, <laughs> I agree. Not, not that not there, are, there are such things, uh, but, you know, if the argument is that the United States should go around assassinating bad guys, well, wouldn't Putin be a bad guy? <laughs> right. I mean, right, here's, right. Somebody, here's somebody who destroyed the prospects of Russia for democracy by taking an illiberal direction, uh, destroyed press freedom in Russia, uh, assassinated a string of journalists and dissidents, uh, a- a- invaded Ukraine, killed thousands of Ukrainians, uh, and, and conducted a virtually genocidal air campaign against uh, dissidents in Syria on behalf of the authoritarian Ba'ath government. So, you know, all those same things you, that, that the mainstream media is saying about uh, Soleimani can be said about Putin, so why doesn't the U.S. take him out? Mm-hmm. Uh, if, that's, if that's the basis for our foreign policy decisions, as people are bad guys. And, I mean, what, what, bad, what people wouldn't be bad guys? And, and, and what about George W. Bush, who in, illegally invaded Iraq, caused hundreds of thousands of deaths, uh, uh, for no good reason, and uh, surely some country could indict him and, and uh, send a drone uh, to Texas for him. I mean, what kind of world are we entering where this this, this kind of uh, murder of state officials is is uh, is all right on the basis that they're bad guys? You know, there isn't there isn't any. There are worse people and better people, but there are very few major politicians in major countries that haven't done something that somebody wouldn't consider really bad. So anyway. Um, no, but I think you're right. You're on the right track there, Juan Cole, because, you know, there's others who'd say that the rogue state in the world is not, say, Iran or others, but but the U.S. by making these provocative bully uh, actions, as you've mentioned. But is there, can you just sort of enlighten us about where the killings of Americans by Iranian force did take place? Is it, does it refer to uh, Bush's surge at the end of 2008? What, we, what, what are they talking about? Well, who knows? Because it's a, it's a vague pronouncement for propaganda purposes. There's, there's no there's no reality to it. Soleimani uh, was a de facto American ally in Iraq uh, from the 2003 <laughs> invasion, which overthrew his enemy Saddam Hussein, uh, through the destruction of ISIS in, in 2018. Uh, in fact, in in uh, in the beginning of the campaign against uh, ISIS in 2015, uh, Soleimani led a charge uh, with uh, the Iraqi uh, government forces and, and Shiite militias uh, on Tikrit, the birthplace of Saddam Hussein. They got bogged down, and the United States didn't want them to get bogged down. They wanted the progress against ISIS. So they gave Soleimani's forces air support. Mm-hmm. The U.S. has been allied de facto with Soleimani. Neither Tehran nor Washington can say this publicly, but that's the, the case of the matter. Wow. Back in the Bush, Bush war in Iraq, the, the, the vast majority of the uh, 
over three and a half thousand U.S. troops that were killed in action uh, were killed by uh, Baathists who are Sunni uh, and by uh, Al Qaeda and the, the kind of embryonic uh, Islamic State of Iraq or ISIS as it was then uh, and, and other Sunni groups. Vast majority, almost all. Then there were some who were killed in the course of fighting with the Mahdi Army, which is a Shiite group. But the Mahdi Army, and this is something that the Pentagon and, the, and Washington never understood, were, were Shiite slum kids. Uh, they were Crips and Bloods, basically. Mm. And they, they hated foreign influence, including Iran. So they weren't being run by Soleimani. Soleimani's major... Uh, uh, you know, backers in Iran, in Iraq at that time during the Bush years was the Islamic Supreme Council of Iraq and the Butter Corps, who were de facto American allies. And Bremer, the, the American viceroy uh, in Iraq, actually put uh, their head on his interim governing council. So, you know, there just isn't, it isn't the case that, that Slimani is directly responsible for the deaths of hundreds of U.S. troops. They're, they're, they're blaming the Mahdi army on him, and they're actually blaming al-Qaeda on him, which is ridiculous. Yeah. It's, just, it's just fall down funny. It would be great to have you on mainstream news, you know, saying things like that, Juan Cole. We only have Go about a minute. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, we only have about a minute left, but I, I just wanted to end with this. You wrote in, uh, in your blog of, um, I think, January 4th, that Trump unites Iran and Iraq against the U.S., and that what he did was to give the pious Shiites of Iran and Iraq a martyr. And folk artists are already depicting Soleimani at Karbala. Um, he said, you say this would be like painting a slain American general into a crucifixion scene. And you also describe the enormous crowds in Iran, you know, at the funeral celebration. So, or rather, mourning. What do you, how do you see this, if you could, in just about a minute, playing out now in Iran? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the opinion polling and other social science we have is that the Iranian regime is not very popular. A lot of people right. would like something else. And there have been, you know, major protests this fall against it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that Soleimani himself was, 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 was popular. But Iranians are nationalists, as you said. And mm -hmm. the idea of a foreign sort of hulking superpower who, who's trying to strangle them economically, just rubbing out one of their military commanders doesn't sit well with people, even if they don't particularly like the military commander. It's like, you know, in the United States, if a... Uh, if a rogue state, you know, assassinated one of those Republican senators that maybe the left doesn't like, nevertheless, they might be in the street protesting about that. So I think this is a situation is that what Trump has done is for the moment has, has uh, uh, given support psychologically inside Iran uh, to the regime at a time when it was facing very severe uh, discontent. Okay. We're going to have to leave it there, but I want to thank you so much for your perspective and analysis, as always, Juan Cole. And you can find Juan Cole at uh, J.R.I. Cole on Twitter. He's the founder and chief editor of Informed Comment. Pick up one of his books. The latest is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. And he's also a professor of history at University of Michigan. Juan Cole, thanks for joining us on Jacobin Radio. It's always great to be with you, Susie. Thanks so much. And don't go away. We're going to come back on Jacobin Radio.
This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm very pleased to have Yusuf Baker with us for the very first time. He works on the political economy of the American invasion and occupation of Iraq and the broader war on terror, and he teaches at Cal State University of Long Beach. He's been writing about the Iraqi protest movement, and I've been wanting to cover that. It seems that there's other events that <laughs> overshadow it somewhat, but we'll talk about that today. But he's been tweeting that American attacks and Trump's assassination of General Soleimani has fanned the escalating regional conflict, and it's a death blow to the Iraqi protests. Uh, Iraqis have been pushed into the eye of the storm, and every Iraqi political force now has to pick a side that'll have deadly consequences. So Iraq is once again a battlefield, and this escalation in that respect is the most consequential action in Iraq since uh, 2003. So uh, with all of that, I want to welcome you to Jacobin Radio. Yusef Baker. Thank you so much, Susie. Thank you for the opportunity to be in conversation with you and with your listeners. I wanted to let the listeners know, too, that you also blog, that you have a a podcast, and we should probably let people know about that. But as I introduced you and said, you're an assistant professor of international studies and the co-director of global Middle East studies at Cal State Long Beach. And I mentioned your research, but you're also part of something called the Iraqi Narrative Project that's an oral history based on documenting uh, the Iraqi exile and migrant narratives. But today we're really, you know, looking at the aftermath of this incredible action that only took place a few days ago, which was the assassination of uh, Qasem Soleimani in Iraq on Iraqi soil. And there's a lot of debate about whether or not this was an illegal international act or not. But, you know, and we just heard from Juan Cole and talked about how, you know, the mainstream media, you know, feels obliged to say he's a, he was a bad guy responsible for hundreds of uh, U.S. deaths and all of that. And I thought maybe we could start with uh, the lay of Iraqi politics that allowed this attack on their soil. Yeah. So what is happening currently in Iraq and what is happening since October has been a protest movement led by ordinary Iraqis against the Iraqi government uh, and against kind of the corruption, the ineptitude, and the incompetence of the Iraqi government uh, that was, in fact, uh, put in place by the American occupation. So we mm. have to understand that any... Uh, the shortfalls of the Iraqi state are actually the shortfalls of the policies of American statecraft in Iraq. Uh, so the Iraqi uh, people have been protesting uh, the, the government for all kinds of different reasons that we could get into. And there was a real kind of optimism and opening for democratic possibility of creating an, uh, an Iraqi otherwise, an otherwise to the status quo that has been there for the past 16 years since the American occupation. And that has been put into doubt uh, by the, re- the, the attack and the assassination, which in fact is illegal. There is no debate. There is no conversation. If we understand international law, if we take sovereignty to mean anything, then the attacks, not only the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, but the attack on uh, a couple of days ago on December 29th against popular mobilization units positions in northern Iraq are a breach of international law. But these attacks have meant the undermining of the very democratic possibility and foreclosure of any type of a different future 
uh, that could have been brought about by the success of the protest movement in Iraq. And so, in many ways, the attack against Qasem Soleimani is part and parcel of American attempt to sustain a, a, or, or to resist any change in the Middle East, and part of its long history of protecting a status quo that is antithetical to democratic possibilities. Uh, and, and the reason why I say that is because now you saw today, I mean, you were talking about this with uh, Juan Cole, uh, that, the Ameri- that the Iraqi parliament just right. passed a resolution. That was going to be my next question. Yes. Yeah, to, to kick out the American forces. And so at the very time when the, the Iraqi parliament and the Iraqi government had lost any sort of credibility in Iraq mm-hmm. and was on its heels, uh, as the protesters were calling for a fundamental change in the Iraqi state from the, to the root of the constitution itself, now you have, through kind of nationalist discourse and through the assertion of sovereignty, the Iraqi parliament and the Iraqi elites refinding a sort of credibility in Iraq. And this is, this is kind of the, the, the consequence of American actions throughout the world that we seldom re- really understand. Beyond the number of people dead, beyond the economic immiseration that's created, what American actions, especially in the region, do is foreclose uh, uh, possibilities of alternatives. That has been America's policy in the region for a very long time. And I want to push back against one thing that uh, Juan Cole said, and I have a lot of respect for him, and I think he's been he's he's informed me on a lot of the things that have been happening mm-hmm. in the region. But uh, uh, Professor Cole said was analyzing the, the what was going on in terms of American policy from personally trying to understand Trump, and I think that we need to understand American foreign policy that I, uh, in a more structural perspective. And from a structural perspective, I think tr- Donald Trump and his erraticism and spontaneity it actually embodies the recent American policies in the region. I'm so that glad America- you said that. I want to just ask that because I did ask, you know, Juan Cole about the divisions and about, you know, the contradictions, say, between the very hawkish people he has around him and then his own instincts to protect his base and not really get involved. And in fact, he was talking about, you know, some form of withdrawal or drawing down. So and now, of course, as you've just mentioned, Youssef, the Iraqi parliament has stepped in. So this also maybe will embolden them and and create maybe a, a, a you know a sliver of respect for them. These are huge ramifications. Please continue. Yeah, and and so you know the 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 policy of the United States uh, in in the region has been one of destabilization from the the Arab Revolt of 2011 and previously. And destabilization and chaos as a system is a productive one. Now, it's not clear because we can't tell. We have to wait for papers to be released or leaked. Uh, but what, if you piece together the consequences of American policies in the region, uh, and you look, they are either the results of intentional actions or un- the unintended results of intentional actions, <laughs> where the U.S. has created destabilization, not only in Iraq, I mean, you have in, uh, 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 in Afghanistan, but, but, but throughout. So what you have, for example, well, I'll, I'll give you one example. Mm-hmm. The United States, in, in creating 
this war with Iran, and especially President Trump recently when he pulls out of the nuclear negotiations, and we could go into the history of the nuclear negotiations mm -hmm. against Iran as itself kind of a fantastical myth that was created by, by the U.S. in terms of its policy in the, in the region. But that when Donald Trump pulls out of the nuclear negotiations with Iran he, and, 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 go, and creates a, a war, as, as, as Juan Cole suggested, it created a, a game in the region where there is a zero-sum opportunity for the Iranian regime. The Iranian government now feels that it's under existential threat, and thus it has to respond and to bolster its position. So where does it bolster its position? It bolsters its positions in Iraq. It does so in Syria. It does so in Lebanon. And it does so in Yemen and in other places. And in all of these places, then, the Iran is fighting with the U.S. and U.S. allies. And in turn, the U.S. then promotes brutal dictatorships and brutal wars in the region, whether that is Sisi in Egypt or uh, General Haftar in Libya or uh, 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 the, the crown prince in the UAE, the monarchy in Bahrain, or the worst of them, Mohammed uh, bin Salman in Saudi Arabia right. and his genocidal war in Yemen. And so in all of these ways, this destabilization and this chaos furthers kind of emboldening state and statist authority, both in the region and in the United States. You know, the chaos that is created or the semblance of chaos, I just landed in LAX yesterday. <laughs> and the tweet that I saw from LAPD was LAPD talking about how it's uh, uh, ready to respond to any kind of Iranian reprisals in Los Angeles, the city that houses a very significant uh, uh, Iranian population <laughs> that has, is not connected to Iranian statecraft at all. And so this is the this creation of this chaos emboldens state power both over there and an emboldened state power over here where people feel like they are under threat when they are really not. And this is harmful to democratic potentiality throughout the world. And this is a structural then problem and not a personal problem of Donald Trump. I really like, Youssef, that you're describing it as this sort of, um, you know, the structural, that the structural uh, a, a part of U.S. foreign policy is chaos and sowing chaos. It's reactive, of course, to be sure, and doesn't seem to be planned. But if, if the only part of the plan is to create this chaos that the United States can then step in to control or not, you know, does make some sense. And I want to go, you know, because we don't have oodles of time, and I want to hear from you about the resistance movement, because that, you know, you say in your tweets that this assassination, you know, is death to that movement. So maybe you could just describe the big uprising and accompanying social movements that was gripping Iraq in the period before the stepped-up conflicts between the U.S. on the one hand, pro-Iran and Iraq forces on the other. What was the res resistance about, and to what extent was it about corruption and the undemocratic nature of the regime and maybe the role of the pro-Iranian forces there? And to what extent more generally, you know, was it about neoliberalism and putting it in a sort of, you know, uh, like all of the other protests that we've seen in 2019 against regimes all over the globe? I mean, all of that, right? So yeah. I think if I uh, – the, the protest that started in October – 
was one uh, uh, responding to the lack of infrastructure that has been devastated in Iraq since 1979, but really since 1991's American war on Iraq, the siege that was laid on Iraq for 13 years, and then the 2003 invasion of Iraq, which devastated Iraq's infrastructure and never was rebuilt. Uh, and the second reason was the economic immiseration of Iraq, which was a consequence of the American occupation's idea of rebuilding Iraq based on a neoliberal fantasy that the private sphere could just create things if you just kind of... It was, a, it was an experiment in state-making uh, 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 that they experimented with the lives of millions of people in Iraq. So the economic immigration and the economic policy wasn't able to rebuild the infrastructure. Third, the, 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 the recent protest in Iraq was because of uh, a state that has little capacity uh, because of bureaucratic issues that is endemic because of the way that it was uh, created. The state uh, has overlapping jurisdictions that was sold by Americans as checks and balances, so it has created parallel state institutions and complete incapacity throughout the state. So the state cannot respond to economic immiseration and lack of infrastructure. Fourth, the people were responding to political parties, uh, political parties that are sectarian because the Americans had a fantasy that Iraq was a sectarian society, right. so they built a political system that was itself sectarian, so they created uh, an Iraq based on their fantasy of what Iraq was. And you remember, uh, of course, that this was what Biden proposed at the time of the invasion. He thought that, you know, Iraq should be divided into three, reflecting each of the, uh, you know, what sects of, of uh, Islam, and it was unbelievable, I thought, at the time, but continue look i mean this is you know people in, in the academy people read edward said's orientalism but mm. unfortunately we just read that as simply an academic exercise rather than kind of what it actually means politically what it actually means politically orientalism is that american policymakers when they talk about places like iraq or iran or lebanon or afghanistan they're not actually talking about actual places in the world they're talking about places in their own fantasies. And here I'm talking about Republicans and Democrats, all Democrats except for maybe Bernie Sanders, that, that these are fantasy places that then they built policies around their fantastical notions of these places and their people. Unfortunately, the difference of American power, and this is the power of empire that no other people have, is that then they're able to manifest their fantasies and acts. Uh, in actual places, because they have the political and military and economic means to do so. So then they create the world in their own uh, 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 maniacal fantasies. And then the rest of us have to live in that dystopian reality that exists only in their twisted minds. This is what Iraqis have been living through for the latter half of the 20th century. This is what Iranians have to live through. This is what Lebanese have to live through. These are structural problems. So when we talk about bad guys, if we all want to talk about what the bad guy is as an institution, then I think we need to look at the institution of the presidency in the United States as the commander-of-chief of the U.S. military and the effects it has throughout the world in terms of how people live. Because based off of these conflicts that you were talking about between hawks and non-hawks and liberal side of the Democrats, mm -hmm. the people who have to then suffer through that, the tanks and the drones go through our bodies. Our bodies become the terrain for American patients. And that is, uh, that is just 
We're losing you. Traumatic. Sorry, if you could hear me now. Yeah, yeah, we that can hear you. Just a, don't move around. <laughs> Go ahead. That is just a sad, traumatic uh, state of the 21st century. Yeah, well, let's go. This is really good, Yusef, and it's exactly where I wanted to go. And I want to get, though, more in our last, you know, 10 minutes uh, into what's actually what you think might happen next. Will the U.S. attacks embolden any section of the, uh, you know, resistance in Iraq or will it force them or, you know, get them to sink their differences, at least temporarily, and come together to oppose the Americans, as we've seen with the act, you know, of parliament now saying they're going to expel them? What? How, can you describe very briefly the main political effa- uh, factions involved and what they can be expected to do now, and and maybe we can hear like at, to what extent they are, uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, sectarian um, factions. The Iraqi protests, at least the ones in Tahrir Square and in the squares in Karbala, Najaf, and Basra, and other places, uh, even though currently dominated by Shia, uh, Shia, uh, but it was Shia talking for their Sunni brothers and sisters. Who most of which are uh, are suffering because they are internally displaced people, and they're speaking for their Kurdish brothers and sisters because the Kurdish uh, people have also been in support of dramatic changes to the Iraqi central government and the Kurdish regional government. These protesters have been calling for non-sectarianism, for an end to corruption, and for a, a, a sovereign elite uh, or a sovereign political parties that are not connected to outside forces, including the Americans, the Iranians, the Saudis, the Turks. the And this is similar to the Lebanese protesters, too, doing the same thing. But but continue. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And so I think their work was already, they had a tough road ahead. Uh, And their tough road ahead just became monumentally more difficult because now Iraq has become the terrain through which the U.S., is going to impose uh, kind of this proxy war uh, and a war against Iran. And this is going to be the terrain through which then the Iranians have to respond to. And so it'll bolster these, these other political parties in Iraq that are connected either on the one hand to the Iranians or connected on the other hand to the Saudis, which means connected to the U.S., uh, and that's going to be the game that then the, 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 the protester has to navigate through. Uh, and discursively, that's much more difficult. Physically, that's much more difficult because now the conflict has to become that much more, uh, uh, could become that much more violent. Uh, and, and, that, and that game, this, cha- this shift in the terrain, the, the responsible party is the United States. It's no other, it's no other, it's no other actor. We cannot look at Iran as the problem here uh, because Iran is playing the game that the Americans set up. You can't hate the player. you got to hate the game. <laughs> and the game is set up by the Americans. And so this is, this, this is why I'm saying this is a death blow. I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I, I, I sincerely hope that I'm wrong. But this is from the perspective of a non-statist perspective, from a perspective of uh, wanting to see justice and equality be manifested in the world, this uh, is not going to go anywhere. And this and what coming 
It's the opposite of that. Uh, and that's been the legacy of American intervention in the region. You know, we have this discourse where we talk about the Middle East as always being in turmoil, and thus, and, and that being an evidence of the backwardness or the cultural deficiency of people in the Middle East. But really, the, the, the turmoil in the Middle East is caused by the United States. And the, the unending wars or what have you in the region is a reflection of American policy in the region. And thus, if us as Americans, as people in the United States, if we, need to, if we are, have any role to play, we need to stop being kind of this sleeping giant uh, that delegates and outsources our policies to the, to the racists who roam the, the halls of D.C. and to actually step up and to take accountability for what our government is doing, because there are people in other places dying every day. There is people every day in other places that don't know what their future is going to be tomorrow because of the actions of this government, because of the actions of this government and the discourse that, is, that, that runs throughout the United States from D.C. to its media to LAPD that talks about threats in L.A. because uh, uh, that, that could come from Iran. That's the real sad story of the 21st century. And that's a story that we'll have to bring up and, and continue to talk about. But in our final moments, uh, Yusuf Baker, I'd like to go back uh, to Iraq and ask you, you know, what do you know, you, now that the parliament has has passed a resolution to expel the United States. And this action is, as you said, you know, been the most significant since the invasion of Iraq and, and will further destabilize. Um, what do you think it means, though, for the U.S.? Do you think, you know, U.S. damage, U.S. interests have been so damaged and weakened that, you know, this will push Iraq toward Iran? And, you know, maybe you could just, we've got about three or four minutes for you to, like, expand on what, what the this means domestically, and who would be the actors in Iraq to uh, profit by this? I don't know if there's any actor in Iraq that really profits from this other than the Iraqi government and the Iraqi elites as they are currently um, in place. I think who it hurts are the Iraqi protesters. In talking about what American interests are served, you know, like I said again, American power is one that is different from other power. That its interest, whether it's served or not, at the end of the day, doesn't really um, cost the Americans that much. It doesn't cost the Americans that much in blood, and it doesn't cost them that much in terms of uh, uh, capital, in terms of profit, because war-making and reconstruction uh, and post-disaster situation has become a scheme through which capital is accumulated in the United States. So Americans don't have to, and I'm talking about the American states, I'm not talking about people in America, don't have to pay for the, for the consequences of their experimentation with people's lives in other places. And it's important to note for Americans living in the United States that when we talk about American interests and American national interests, we're talking about the interests of American elites not our interests as people living in the United States. So it is high time for people in the United States to take their identities out of their nationalist gutters and to think of themselves as non-nationalists and as human beings, to have a non-border understanding of the world and to see themselves in alliance with people in Iraq and in Iran and in Mexico and in Bolivia and other places and not to 
see their interests to be the same as the American states. We are not the American states. No state is its people. That's the lie of nationalism. And if we are going to have a better century we, and a better decade, then we need to move beyond nationalist rhetoric that is a statist rhetoric. And we need to talk about a different type of political imaginary. Uh, final question, Yousef Baker. Do you see the U.S. being forced out of Iraq now or yet another war there? Or a coup? Is I, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to predict. Mm. Um, I hope, what I hope for is for the whims and desires of the Iraqi people rather than American policymakers to be manifested in Iraq and throughout the world. Thank you so much for that. And I really appreciate, you know, you're coming on today uh, and giving us your views and your expertise on Iraq. I've been speaking with Youssef Baker. He's an assistant professor of international studies and the co-director of the Global Middle East Studies Program at Cal State University, Long Beach. And his research, as you can gather, is about not only the political economy of the American invasion and occupation of Iraq uh, and the broader war on terror, but also about the Iraqi protest movement. And I just want to say, Yousef, I want to have you back as this unfolds because there's so much more that we're going to be seeing. And thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for the opportunity and thank you for having shows like you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine, and special thanks to Robert Brenner, and thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.